Veronica Post is a graphic novelist whose sharply drawn debut book, Langosh and Pepe, Fugitive Days, has just been published by Conundrum Press. In this conversation, she talks about her direct experience of the European migrant crisis and how it shaped the narrative of this immersive and incredibly thoughtful graphic text. Languish and Pepe is a book that blends exuberant adventure with serious reflections on the repressed relationship to history we find in nations that have borne witness to trauma. It combines roaming explorations with a critical perspective on injustice and the basic brutality of borders. By making these connections between racial nationalism, which she calls emotional repression, and the continuing global refugee crisis, Veronica gives us an opportunity to consider the importance of narrative in contesting the long history of moral indifference to the other's suffering. At the end of your interview with the Comics Experience YouTube show, you list some artists that you'd like to have appreciate your work. It's an interesting question mm-hmm. that they throw that they throw at you. And I noticed that they were they were all men. Mm-hmm. Um, I wonder if you get the sense right now that there is a growing group of women in comics that are seizing what I see as a shift toward more literary, complex forms of graphic storytelling. Um, You know, and I also wonder about the legacy of so-called comics gate. I don't know if you're like familiar with this, like weird uh, backlash that happened um, against this focus on identity politics and social justice in comics, a need to kind of like, reclaim superhero comics for the boys um Mm -hmm. you know so it's like kind of two questions like are there women in comics that you're inspired by and are you also aware of this kind of backlash this culture war within comics well um i'm more aware of that culture war when it comes to the film version of comics and and other things too uh so uh for example you know changing the you know, traditional gender of a certain superhero and that can create a backlash or, you know, when the Ghostbusters film came out, that was with women as the Ghostbusters and there was a backlash to that. And in terms of that happening within the comics world, I don't keep up really with what goes on amongst comics fans per se. So I'm not surprised that there was a similar type of backlash there. Um, It's disappointing, uh, but I'm not surprised by it. For sure. And, um, you know, your, your background is sort of in the alternative comics kind of zine Mm -hmm. uh, community. And, you know, you talk in that same interview about how the expo zine event at drawn and quarterly was a turning point for you. You know, people creating their own comics was a, was an eye opener. And um, you say it was then that you started creating zines more seriously. And, you know, you created ones on, and I think this is so interesting, um, you know, uh, bodybuilders who are women. You know, you talk about creating zines about women who didn't have arms. Yeah. Uh, I, I wonder what, what you were kind of exploring during that phase yeah, with, no. regard, with regard to gender. I mean, mm-hmm. why were you interested in these kinds of extreme states? And, and would you say your work is explicitly feminist? I would say that I am a feminist artist. Um, Feminism is very important to me. And I try, it's something that I've thought about a lot. And it's an interesting question. Nobody else has asked me about it, actually. So I'm glad to have a chance to speak about it. I am um, a fan of like numerous female graphic novelists, although I wouldn't necessarily list them as direct influences for the book that I created uh, in terms of style, but I love the work of Jillian Tamaki, for example, and there, you know, Julie Doucette, there's a number of amazing uh, female identified uh, graphic novelists and uh, who I love. When I started getting really into zine making, I was in um, trade school for woodworking. I'm a cabinet maker by trade. And I was the only uh, female identified person in my class. And then when I was finding work, I was one of the also usually one of the very few women in the shop at the time. That and also meeting and becoming friends with other women who worked in male dominated trades really it was a it was a really big learning moment for me and a sort of a self awakening as a feminist 
in a lot of mm -hmm. ways. And so a lot of my work at that time was maybe more explicitly feminist or about the female identified experience. So it is a it is important part of my uh, of my thinking, and I think it influenced the way that I work. And you know, one of the things that I've noted too is um, that you're so open about your drawing process. And there are a lot of illustrators, and I would say especially men who are illustrators who can be quite protective of their process, mm -hmm. as though they want to kind of protect trade secrets and mystify it so that it can't be replicated. Mm -hmm. um, your openness is extraordinary to the extent that, you know, I wish you had an opportunity to teach cartoon studies. I would take a course with you. Um, <laughs> and, you know, you give this great advice at the end of your comics experience interview, um, ex emphasizing the need to just love your own stuff um, and all of the stuff. And what I wonder, too, is like whether you feel like there's a kind of growing digital divide within graphic storytelling. You talk about having a kinship with other artists who share your love of traditional ways of creating comics. Um, are you suspicious at all of artists who draw on computers? And are you maybe also um, suspicious to some extent of the way in which it produces this kind of almost inequality or hierarchy where the people who can afford the tools can produce more polished um, art? Well, I think I wouldn't say I'm suspicious of it because I do have very close friends who work that way. Uh, mm -hmm. I think for me, it's it doesn't speak to me whatsoever. And there is a barrier there uh, when it comes to affording the equipment and having the training necessary to know how to use it properly. Just for me, uh, I'm very tactile and I really like the physical effect of, you know, drawing itself or painting or woodworking or whatever it is I'm doing. So I wouldn't want to to, you know, give that up for some other form of creating. I do see the benefits of it in terms of material waste, because there is a lot of paper that goes into the trash or the recycling. Um, there, there's a lot more material expenditure when it comes to creating work the way that I do. Um, but at the same time, I it's like the physical pleasure that I get from it is important to me. And I think that it comes through in the way that my drawings look. I'm actually mentoring somebody right now who's working on writing a graphic novel, um, another woman, and it's her first graphic novel that she has ever written. And I'm really enjoying the process of mentoring someone on the writing process. Uh, much more so than I thought that I would. Uh, I'm finding myself really inspired by reading what she's sending to me in terms of the synopsis of the story and delving into the way that stories are created and how the types of exercises that you need to do mentally in order to make a good story. Uh, and that has been really interesting for me. And I would love to get more into uh, teaching how to write and draw comic books in the future. You know, you, you've talked uh, in other interviews uh, about how difficult the writing process is, like how much of a challenge it is to structure a narrative mm -hmm. um, and, and how you're, you're sort of you're most at ease, as it were, when you're drawing and, and creating these images. Um, I wonder to what extent you're kind of positioning yourself now as you mentor as, as an editor. You know, you've noted uh, a couple of times in, in one interview that the input of Andy Brown at Conundrum Press really influenced the final version of Langosh and Peppy, Fugitive Days, your book uh, that's just come out from Conundrum Press. For example, uh, you know, Brown emphasizes the need to use black painted areas rather than crosshatching, mm -hmm. um, how you should include a map to track the characters. Yeah. Um, you know, so he's operating as an, an editor. How do you think those notes affected the overall impression of the text? Were there other notes that contributed to the structuring of the book? And have you had to develop the skill of incorporating editorial critiques and input? Yeah, so the, the, the way that Andy and I work together is very collaborative. So um, we tend to sit down. During the process of working on the book, we would sit down maybe once every six months, and we would go over everything that I had done during that time. 
And we would have a really kind of in-depth conversation about everything that was there, why it was there, what it was contributing to the story, and did it have to be there or not, really. So, and that was really useful for me because I think as I got into a little bit in the comics experience interview, um, I was so inexperienced with crafting a story when I began the book that I didn't actually have a plot completely worked out from start to finish when I began. It started as a series of vignettes that I was trying to weave together into one story. The process of working with Andy was really helpful because he essentially would question why is this in the story? Is it adding anything? Does it need to be there? You know, and he was really questioning it, uh, you know, the legitimacy of what I wanted to put in there in terms of, sure, it might be an interesting little vignette, but what is it adding to the overall point that I'm trying to get across with this book? Um, and that was really useful for me. And I, and I'm keeping that in mind. I think, for me, it's harder to edit my own work than it is to edit the work of others. And I really enjoy the process of helping other people edit their work. And I think through doing that more, I'll become better at editing my own work as well. I like that idea of kind of trying to remove non-essential elements to just kind of keep the story moving and keep the reader engaged. To me in particular, there's something interesting about seeing a map rendered in a comic book that conceptually kind of reacquaints us with the artificial nature of drawn borders, mm. you know, like slick infographics that we see on the news make borders feel stable and very important, especially as we watch waves of the coronavirus that seem increasingly internal to specific borders. But mm. I think there's something particularly powerful about seeing an aesthetic representation of the border as a kind of fiction. Do you feel that there's anything kind of whimsical, imaginative about seeing maps in comics? And how do you think it functions in your book? Well, I think that there's a few things that came to mind um, thinking about the map. One of them is as a, you know, as a young adult and currently, I mean, I've always been a fan of fantasy and science fiction. And elements um, of those books often are maps of the fantastical world that you're entering into. Uh, so these are fictional worlds that the author will include a map of so that you can follow the story as you go along. And there's something interesting about that, what you just said about borders and their artificiality and the fictional maps that you find in those fantasy books and the kind of similarities between the two, in a sense. Borders are something that we just make up. So I think that there's something to that, to what you're saying there. The other thing about the drawing of the map was that, and this is something that brought me back even to childhood growing up in Nova Scotia. Often when you would see maps of Canada um, just depicted on logos, for example, or, you know, on a product, Nova Scotia would sometimes just not be there. <laughs> it would just kind of be missing, uh, you know, in, in like a sort of artistically simplified version of a map of North America. Um, Nova Scotia just wouldn't make the cut sometimes because <laughs> it sort of sticks out like this awkward appendage and it would get glossed over. And I would always notice that and be like, oh, well, that kind of hurts a little bit, you know, <laughs> like we're not important enough to be on the map. And then as I was drawing these maps of these complicated regions, I was like, I'm going to, I'm going to have to simplify this and certain little spots aren't going to make it in. And I wonder how people will feel who are from these areas if the little knob that they live on isn't there on the map, you know, and I was thinking about that too. And you know, what home means to people and how those borders can also be a really important indication of identity. For sure. And I definitely wanted to relate the map to Langosh and Pepe's concept of home um, and the book's engagement with the reality of displaced and diasporic people. Um, you know, the, and I love that you connect it to actual fictional fantasy maps and how they underscore the fact that you know, maps are a crucial part of the kind of narrative of belonging. The book uh, that you've written bears witness to 
a lot of tyranny and apathy and exploitation, but it's also invested in this notion that people are capable of generosity and goodness that transgresses and trespasses against borders. And, And it seems like we are kind of in this pivotal moment where war and climate change are, you know, displacing people in, in enormous numbers. And you have this character, Yeba, who talks about at the end of the book, and I don't, I guess I don't want to give too much away, but I think I'm mostly dealing, dealing really with, with the ideas in the book. At the end of the book, she expresses this idea that we are in history now, mm-hmm. which I think is so profound. And it suggests that we are, again, at this kind of pivotal moment where there are ideological forces that are pushing us in the wrong direction. You know, it's something that Barack Obama talked about in his uh, Nelson Mandela address. He said that a politics of fear and resentment and retrenchment is now on the move mm-hmm. at a pace that would have seemed unimaginable a few years ago. Um, and your, your book is about kind of dramatizing pr- protectionism, closed borders, and a barely hidden racial nationalism. Is it hard, do you find, to make art at this time? Or is it kind of necessary to make art that is socially engaged, that uncovers these kinds of hidden truths as a refugee crisis intensifies? There's a couple of, you know, um, maybe different answers to that. One of them is that without uh, experiencing the things that you're talking about, um, you know, in real life, like witnessing that migrant crisis, and also uh, during the uh, during the months preceding that, spending a, a lot of close time with someone who had had experience with police brutality and a lack of quote unquote valid passport, I would not have had the motivation to make the art that I did. It was important to say something about it. It should. It felt like stories that should be written down somewhere, and also, um, it was therapeutic for me because it was. You know, I don't want to over dramatize it, but it was relatively traumatizing witnessing some of that stuff, and like especially the part in the book where um, Yeva, and this kind of circles back to feminism as well, because Yeva is based on a real person, but she exemplifies a lot of characteristics that I think are feminist. (laughs) But the scene in the book where there was a group of migrants who were being detained by the immigration police in Hungary, and they have been separated from their child, and they don't know where the child is, and they're taken away. And that I did witness that happening. And it has t- I, it still affects me emotionally to this day very strongly thinking about that. I have no idea whether or not that family was ever reunited. And the fact that that happened in a place where they had come to be safe uh, just tears me up. <laughs> you know, it's so unjust and it's so unnecessary and unfair. If I had remained in Hungary, I don't know how possible it would have been or how how easy it would have been to publish that book. Coming back to Canada did make me appreciate the fact that in Canada, we live in a society that is at least fairly open to having conversations about these things. And I am able to write a book that's critical of certain governments and I can publish it here. But when I was in Hungary, I did feel the weight of a certain type of emotional repression from everyone around me seeming to have a completely different reaction to what they were seeing than I did. Hmm. So I think the environment that I, that, you know, that you are in as an artist can either be, can be, you know, simultaneously inspirational, but also very oppressive. That idea of emotional repression is so interesting and I think important in the sense that, you know, you're talking about how uh, sometimes directly experiencing brutal policing can sometimes still not produce the kind of empathy that it, that it ought to. And on that point, I guess I, I wondered about the, the way in which you're drawn to particular spaces and that you know, that that compulsion to explore wastelands in particular that you talk about is to me fascinating. It's it's something that, you know, many people would prefer to avert their eyes from. 
but you're drawn to the architecture of decay. It's kind of showing this experimentation with form and the traces of history, but you're also documenting the spaces of congregation for many refugees, camps, train stations. To me, um, that direct experience is, is interesting, especially in the context of a comic book where it's not photographic evidence of these spaces, right? It's not like the documentary Human Flow, where you're actually seeing moments and places where refugees become visible to the public, where they, when and where they are processed. Um, my question is basically, how do you think comics can contribute to a certain kind of cosmopolitan education, like forcing people who actually tend to be good at really focusing just on the local to imagine themselves outside of that local space as part of a global community. I mean, we see photos of the horror created by war, Alan Kurdi mm -hmm. washed up on a beach, the bombing of Aleppo, mm -hmm. but it's sometimes an overwhelming experience for the public. What do you think comics can contribute? Well, I certainly hope that comics can contribute something uh, to that for people because, you know, in, in a similar way, I suppose that, um, film or you know audio could um it takes you into a narrative like news for a lot of people can be um just difficult to digest because of the way that it is uh, formatted you know like it's very dry and you know there's a lot of good reasons for that i'm not saying that they should change the way they do news but i think that for people who want to feel maybe more moved in an elevated sense, in terms of an emotionally resonant sense, a narrative is a better way to do that. Um, it can also give a little bit more time to get into some of the details that uh, you won't, you wouldn't necessarily have the time to do any other way. So when it came to my book, it was important for me to document those decayed spaces uh, because they are sort of representational of a very recent history in those regions, you know, especially like the former Yugoslavia. It wasn't that long ago that it was Yugoslavia. <laughs> uh, and the, the, the decay that has happened and how visible it is, the rapid change that that society underwent and the very traumatic way that it ended, um, I feel like is represented kind of best through the those wastelands and those sort of destroyed buildings and bits of leftover infrastructure. I mean, they tell a really important story. They do. And, you know, I also spoke with Rebecca Rower for this podcast and you know, she talks about how there's something unique about comics in the sense that you're seeing the trace of a hand rendering these images, right? Rather than a machine capturing it. So you're kind of putting yourself necessarily in the text. You've even, you've even talked about how you get emotional writing, particularly sad or drawing, particularly sad scenes. Mm -hmm. And I think that is kind of embodied in the images mm -hmm. um, in a really interesting way. Um, I kind of wanted to talk about emotional resonance, what you call emotional resonance. Uh, in terms of the relationship between Langosh and Pepe, the role of the animal mm -hmm. in allowing you to kind of get this more textured emotional experience. In your interview, for example, with Howard Chakowitz, you talk about this idea that the non-human animal, in this case, Pepe, can serve as a means of doing uh, a specific kind of memory work, I would, I would say. Um, you know, like Henry Jenkins has this new book on comics called Comics and Stuff, where he talks about how memory work always involves acts of interpretation. Mm -hmm. You see this play out when Langosh is talking to Pepe about moments of trauma that he says would, he wishes would just go away, mm -hmm. but that keep recurring. Um, it's so interesting as he kind of struggles with his past that he's speaking to his dog. It's such a kind of relatable thing. Um, and I guess, you know, uh, um, that's, you know, I just wonder if we could kind of unpack that a little bit, this sure. idea that, that, you know, talking to animals uh, uh, unlocks a certain kind of honesty, you know, um, how or why do you think animals offer this, this sort of sounding board for our emotions and ideas? And how does it play out in the book? Well, I think in a sense, it's because um, all Peppy can do is listen. 
when you speak to something that is just listening to what you have to say without judging it, without responding to it, without qualifying it or saying, yes, that's right, or you're okay, or, you know, what you think is, you know, is true or what you think is false, just listening it's kind of like humans really are bad at that. <laughs> you know, like it's really hard to have a conversation with another human about something difficult you're going through without them saying something to you, you know, along the lines of, well, you, you know, it's not your fault or you didn't do anything wrong or whatever kind of reassuring words um, they want to say to you if you're going through a difficult time. And sometimes you don't really want to hear that. All you want to do is just, express your emotions to a listening intelligent being and just have them listen and take it in and not judge you or not say anything and um it's very hard to find uh with people and i think that you know maybe that's why peppy is is such a great character for that because langosh is struggling with a lot of decisions and you know whether or not he did the right thing in terms of running away from his problems, so to speak. When you've been caught doing something wrong, but the punishment that you've gotten for the thing that is wrong outweighs what you actually did, isn't it really okay at that, in that, po- at that point to run away and say that you're not going to face the judgment you know it's kind of like if langosh got caught for doing whatever petty crimes he'd done and he was beaten and sexually assaulted by the police and he left without facing justice quote unquote is that okay or not is it you know morally a good thing to do or should he have stayed and and faced it and then gotten it over with and, and he wouldn't have put himself and his family through all of that. You know, there's all these questions happening in his mind and no human being is going to be able to tell you the answer to those questions. Sometimes you just need to talk about it and not have some someone give you an answer. It's only an answer that you can provide. So I think that's kind of why Peppy is a great foil for that type of conversation. Yeah, I I think so too, and that's you know that's such um such a rich response. There's so much that we could kind of like talk about coming out of that uh, this idea of listening without judgment, and especially I think this idea that I really kind of resonate with of you know wanting a conversation in which the other person is not necessarily trying to solve or or you know trying to resolve the feeling, but rather just just kind of letting it letting it settle. Like there's something like profoundly ethical about that that form of listening that we, we don't get a lot of for sure. And, and to that point, I guess I wanted to think through um, the book's dialogue, like the actual exchanges between people, which Mm -hmm. are so often very fraught things, right? Like um, I think, you know, one of the uh, most interesting characters in the book, and she doesn't get a lot of sort of screen time as it were, is Augie. Yeah. You know, Augie has all of these wonderful, um, you know, again, really kind of like subtly complex comments about the origins of human ugliness. And she seems to be hinting at how it comes really from class division and these kinds of things, um, all of these these barriers between us. And so, like, there's all this stuff going on with that character. The fact she dresses up as a witch. Sorry, spoiler alert. Um, <laughs> yeah. So interesting. Um, yeah. So, like... Just the dialogue is so, so interesting. And, and you, you do manage to constantly convey this idea that Langosh is, is, he wants connection with people, but he's constantly fighting a kind of cynicism, especially when he encounters virulent racism, all this individualism. Um, you note in your interview with Howard, for example, that you finished much of the book before you wrote the dialogue. That's interesting to me, considering how lively, engaging, and real the dialogue feels. Um, did much of the dialogue come from the fact that you wrote the book in part as a diary of your travels through Europe? Uh, were you able to mine that material and make it into a more cinematic thing for the comic? Like, were those fraught moments true to life? Mm-hmm. Well, wanting to write the dialogue in a way that seemed honest was important to me. And I, I did find it challenging because 
in a sense, it's like the memory exercise that we were talking about before. I'm just remembering all of these things. So I'm filtering all of the dialogue through the same filter, which is just my brain. And I didn't want everything to end up sounding the same, you know, like I didn't want everything to end up sounding like me. So I'm like, okay, I need to, it took me quite some time to, to try to get into the minds of those characters and filter it through those characters' experiences rather than just my own. That was hard for me at first. But the conversations were true to life. Some of them were just as, they were just conversations that I tried to remember as accurately as possible. The most challenging conversation was the one uh, that happened in English and Kurdish uh, near the end of the story with the refugee family that came into the apartment. That was based on a real, you know, event that happened uh, with a real family that I invited into my apartment. And of course, we couldn't communicate. Um, Their daughter did speak a little bit of English, but we had, we spent hours together and we didn't speak any of the same language. And I'm, I was trying, I was debating with myself, like, how should I do this? I ended up simplifying the dialogue as much as I could to like the bare essentials, which is basically what we were getting across, you know, like my name is, you know, <laughs> just, you know, just like trying to get these basic ideas across to each other and have a pleasant time together. And I translated those, those basic um, sentence structures into Kurdish and I couldn't find a Kurdish speaker. <laughs> so I had to use Google translate and I was like, I hope that it works out. Okay. But yeah, that was the most challenging conversation that I had to write. In terms of the other ones, they were pretty much just like from memory, what I could, what I could remember and what I'd written in my diary. Yeah. And like, thank goodness I kept that diary. (laughs) Uh, It was very useful later on. The role of memory is such a recurrent thing. Uh, And I wanted to um, talk about one moment toward the end of the book where Again, you uh, you have Langosh and Yeba encounter uh, what appears to be this kind of xenophobic mob, and they try and kind of head them off, and they they wind up at a at a refugee camp, and there's this there's this moment where your your cartoonish style kind of clears for a second, and you have a kind of slightly more realistic depiction of the faces of the exhausted. Uh, displaced people, these Syrian refugees, and it's it's clear, I think, to the reader in that moment that there's an attempt at conveying something more kind of empathetic and engaged, in, in just in the increase in realism. Jenkins talks about how, um, as he puts it, caricatures become racist stereotypes in mm-hmm. comics historically, and how contemporary mm-hmm. cartoonists are, he says, haunted by that legacy. You know, he says, um, in some ways, cartoonists today pull from a previous generation's trove of stereotypes in order to induce shock and surprise and pro- and provoke us to reflect on the origins of these kind of caricatures. Um, but you're not doing this in your book. And it's like very emphatically that you're not doing this at the end of the book, even though it is inspired in some ways by uh, the Tintin comics. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, how do you... How did you develop your characters? How do you make these choices around how to repre- represent especially Syrian refugees? Well, I think I would never have attempted to represent refugees if I hadn't actually met and spent a significant amount of time around refugees. It would have just been, I feel, phony for me to do so. So I did have a lot of photographs and video and personal memories uh, and of conversations to draw from for those. And it was very important for me not to create a caricature of what a quote unquote refugee is. Um, There was so much diversity of, you know, human experience and spirit and emotion there. I mean, you know, it's, it's basically humanity laid bare, (laughs) Um, the emotions were very raw and very on the surface and in some cases exuberant and lively and lovely and in some cases just exhausted and grief stricken and I wanted to try to get some of all of that across um, as much as I could. 
it really comes through. Uh, but there are all of these places that you in interviews have noted, and even at the beginning of, of the text itself, you note that you are not a historian uh, or a journalist. And you seem to be emphasizing that while it's drawn from uh, experience, it's not aiming at total accuracy. I wonder why, you know, you kind of insist on this and how much you differentiate yourself from someone like Sarah Glidden or um, Guy Delisle. Is it necessary to reduce the claim to authority here to allow you more creative freedom? Well, I think maybe part of that is coming from the fact that a very close friend of mine is a journalist. And so I'm quite aware of the differences in our, the way that we are able to work. Um, Journalists are under a lot more restrictions in terms of what they can say. (laughs) You know, they have to fact check everything, right? And for me, it was more of a diary, more of a journal, uh, more of an emotional journey that I was on. And I didn't, really want to have to bother fact checking every date and, uh, you know, or have any names or do footnotes or anything like that. In a sense, it is, you know, a sort of a reportage, I guess, but I, I just didn't want people to necessarily take it and cite it as fact, although everything that is represented in the book is something that I witnessed. Yeah, and, and and certainly in terms of the emotion, there's nothing more powerful, you know, um, in some ways or palpable, uh, because he is the central character, than uh, Langosh's border-related anxiety, yeah. right? Like biting his nails on the train, and you're really smart about how you kind of represent that that pressure. What's also interesting is that when he talks to Pepe about um, these moments of anxiety, when he talks about past trauma, you know, you're not representing it in like conventional stereotypical Hollywood ways as something that is like buried or that can be managed. Like he has to try actively to suppress it Mm -hmm. and it doesn't work exactly. Mm -hmm. And I wonder, um, you know, in terms of blending experience with uh, research and with narrative structure, if you had to research theories of trauma in order to try and create the narrative of Langosha's struggle with his past, or were, were these like, more speculations on trauma that came from your own experiences talking to people who have been victimized. I did not do a lot of research into trauma. No, um, the the way that I depicted Langosh is based on a real person and a very very close dear friend of mine who I have empathetically witnessed having panic attacks over situations like that. Um, And, you know, anybody who knows somebody who has been the victim of police violence is familiar with the reaction that a person who has gone through that has when they see a person in uniform, for example. It's really hard to hide the anxiety. You know, it takes it takes breathing exercises for some people, you know, there's all sorts of things that people have to do in order to survive that type of um, intense pressure. And language is essentially like a quite privileged person. You know, he's a white male Westerner with a Canadian passport, but even with those things, uh, he can be reduced to like a state of near panic at the thought of, being deported for like what would certainly be an arrest in Canada. And so I I think that um I didn't I didn't really have to do research because I had enough experience um from you know being close to people who had had traumatic experiences with authority figures that I could draw from that experience for the book. You know, kind of switching switching gears to some extent. I wanted to uh talk about this recurrent theme, especially in the kind of first part of the book of the kind of magic feeling of discovering something hidden mm-hmm. um, and, ha- and how it kind of, you know, is used narratively and conceptually to explore um, history, right? This seems to be the, the idea is that, you know, you go through something that is just a tiny sign on the surface, right? Just a signal of something deeper. Uh, and then you, you uncover 
basically secrets. And there is this idea in the book that you can find a world that is still intact underground, uh, that is this kind of trace of, of a past. And you even at one point note a feeling of like going through time as you go down and then kind of emerge from, from these kind of bunkers. In your Facebook launch for the book, you also talk about happening upon these traces of the history of genocide decaying in the ground mm -hmm. and how this history would not have had the same impact on you if you experienced it in the space of a museum. Um, can you can you speak to that that experience of a kind of you know roaming, exploring, and finding these moments of almost passing through time by finding these spaces underground? Mm. Well, it's an amazing experience to discover something like the things that I had the chance to discover when I was exploring there. It's an odd mixture of adrenaline because you know that you're sneaking around somewhere that you probably shouldn't be. <laughs> but there's also this odd peacefulness to it because it's also like you're totally alone and you know that probably nobody else is going to find you down there. So there's a trespass adrenaline kind of feeling to it, but there's also this sort of peaceful, serene kind of almost otherworldly feeling to it as well especially when you're going subterranean and it's dark and quiet. One of the several like really impactful places that I discovered was the nuclear bunker that I wrote about in the book because the posters on the wall were so vivid, the colors that, you know, they hadn't seen the light of day. So they were like super bright, like sort of technicolored and just the fact that they were still there and they they were left behind from such a different time, you know, a moment when really it seemed like at any moment the world could just end. And then here we are, maybe two decades later, and the world is still here, but this memory is still underground and it's still vivid. And I feel like though the subterranean discoveries in the book kind of represent a societal subconscious, like things that have happened in the past that we all kind of pretend are over and done with, but really they're just under the surface and they're affecting everything that happens and the way that we react to things today. I thought that's, that whole sequence was fascinating, the idea of almost tomb raiding in the nuclear bunker. Yeah. Um, and and how you you're exploring basically artifacts of the cold war um and i, I wanted to kind of relate this to um chernobyl of all things right mm -hmm. this concern with the consequences for example of the you know ignorance of the effects of radiation one of the posters in the bunker kind of depicts this yeah. um and you know i mean hbo produced this miniseries on chernobyl that speaks to something you you were addressing earlier around like um, the emotional resonance that comes from fictional representations of historical uh, moments, right? Like Chernobyl is a is a disaster known to many people, but it wasn't until HBO put together a beautifully acted and shot rendering of that moment that people kind of became interested. That societal subconscious kind of came to life, and even you know there was an increase in. Uh, tourism to Chernobyl, mm -hmm. um, like that's so that's so interesting in some ways. Uh, it is, just the, you know, the power of narrative fiction to compel people to like re-engage with history. It's so interesting that you bring up Chernobyl for like a lot of reasons. One of them is that I never had the chance to make it to Ukraine, although I have Ukrainian heritage and I would love to go there one day. This is the feeling I have about Chernobyl. It's just. It was a like horrific accident, and I don't want Chernobyl to become a tourist destination. <laughs> you know, in the sense that it it could be, it could take. You know, if they turned it into something that took away from the the emotional impact that I think it could have. A friend of mine told me about. Uh, visiting one of the concentration camps in Europe, uh, one of the several that have been, you know, uh, that you can go to visit. He was saying that you had to walk 
or bike down a country road for quite a distance before you got to the camp. And it it made it so much more impactful that you had to walk on this country road for a distance to get there. You couldn't just drive up to the gate, you know, and look at it. And I feel like Chernobyl, if anything happens with it, it should be something like that where there has to be a journey to get there where there's a sense of discovery and a peacefulness and a quietness to it. It needs to be contemplative, you know? Mm-hmm. I, I just don't want them to like gussy it up, <laughs> you know? And that's just my, that's just my personal uh, aesthetic maybe like coming in. But well, and another thing, like it's related in a sense to my book because I talk about in the beginning of the book, uh, there's a train station that I want to live at. And I ended up finding out later that it was a train station from which all of the uh, Jews were deported to death camps from Budapest. And Budapest used to have, I think it was the highest Jewish population of any European city before that war. And there was no indication on the building when I was looking at it that anything like that had happened there. And I also have uh, Jewish ancestry. So it was, you know, maybe further disturbing for me to discover that. I, I would remember like later on, they did turn it into a Holocaust museum, which seemed appropriate. But um, they sort of they sort of painted the whole building and they kind of kind of renovated it maybe to make it look more like it did back in the day. Um, and they sort of fixed it up. And I remember thinking they should have just left it. <laughs> they should have just left it decayed and sort of falling apart and just the way it was, because I remember when I'd found out about that and then I went back to the building to look at it. It was so much more impactful to me that all of this history had happened to that building between the war and now. Like, life went on and nobody stopped to do anything (laughs) to commemorate that. And that seemed important to me. Um, Mm -hmm. And I feel like it got lost when they decided to sort of paint it up. Uh, it, it's conveyed in the book in a way that does make an impact. Um, the the sense that, you know, like, for example, the fact that Langosh, he gravitates to rivers, water, bridges, these spaces that are not um, touristy or sanitized, right, that are contemplative, as you put it, in a different kind of way. And I just love the concern with these small moments of potential transformation, where it isn't there isn't some kind of like program in place for how you're supposed to interpret what you're experiencing or what you're remembering. Um, you know, he bathes in a river with Pepe. I could almost imagine a sort of soundtrack to these moments of free exploration um, that underscores the kind of transformation taking place. And and there's something sublime about it, but also that sublime is constantly shattered by uh, the problems of the world, the fact that as you put it on one page, you're always walking on somebody's grave. You're you're engaging with the historical traces of what was there, but through the land itself in a way that has a certain kind of wisdom to it, right? He, he talks about a bridge having witnessed, borne witness to history. What were you kind of trying to convey? What feeling were you trying to convey in these panels? Well, I think maybe it's because I'm just a really introverted person. <laughs> So I don't love crowded spaces with lots of, you know, signs and interpretations that I'm supposed to look at. So that might have something to do with it. But I, I, I think also I like the feeling of discovering something, even though obviously, you know, tons of people have been there before me. There's this sort of feeling that I had when I was traveling around that I had discovered something on my own. No one told me to go there and see that thing and how I should feel about it when I saw it. It was just walking along and then, oh, here's this thing. And how do I feel about it? I wasn't expecting to see this thing. 
now I have to confront these feelings that I was maybe unprepared to have. And, you know, the sense of discovery and then the surprise and then the thoughts that are, that are evoked from situations like that are very special. It's, it's, it's different. There's, it's not the same as, uh, you know, um, planning. I've never been, first of all, I'm not organized enough to like plan a trip where I'd be like, and I'm going to see all these things. And like every day, here's my list of museums to visit and things like that. I mean, that is fine. And it's good for people to visit museums and learn about those things. But I'm very much more like, I'm just going to wander around and see what I can discover. And then, you know, I'll take the time, however much time I think I need to think about what I discovered. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that resistance to, or like that, that kind of inclination toward like finding safety in like sort of unsafe situations is is like a, a, a just an interesting thing to vicariously experience in a graphic novel um and i'm just so appreciative that you spent so much of your time putting it together i mean the image on page 139 of you know one of these kind of decaying spaces is literally one of the most beautiful panels i've ever seen in a graphic oh, novel thank you, you know? and it's it's like it's because it conveys in one image after a long miserable night mm -hmm. um you know, what you're trying to convey in, in sort of the whole book, how, you know, the creation of the, of a home, which is like almost a childlike thing for Langosh, where he literally will, you know, find a cinder block and say, here's a seat for you. And here's a seat for me. Like it's, he's like imagining a home mm -hmm. um, separate from the outside world. Like you're, you're conveying in that one image, how that act is really the condition of possibility for beginning to explore and create. You know, at one point, language says it's nice to know we've got a camp tonight and it's only then that they can go and start exploring. And so you're like you're doing all of this work artistically to, you know, to think through these larger political issues around home and belonging and, and the refugee crisis and displaced people. Um, and you're, you're just doing doing it in such um, to use terms from our own kind of conversation tonight, an emotionally resonant way. Uh, that I think that I hope will really resonate with readers. So I appreciate you talking to me. Well, thank you. I hope it resonates with readers too. I think one of the one of the real strengths that Langosh has as a character is that instead of pushing against the situation that he finds himself in, he kind of decides to try to enjoy it in a certain sense um, mm -hmm. and find you know pleasure in you know, his quote-unquote freedom to do what he wants to do, even though there's a lot of limitations to that freedom, and to sort of live in a very unconventional way and try to make the most of it. It's, it's a lovely book, and thanks. Uh, thanks again for talking to me. Thank you so much. <laughs>